Good evening, good evening. Welcome. It's actually starting to get dark already, so wait till that time changes in a few weeks. And so, yeah. How many of you like it when the time changes? You just embrace it. So, see, I kind of do too. It's just you and me, though. Everybody else, how many hate it, right, when it's dark at 4 o'clock in the afternoon? Yeah, most people, most people <laughs> despise it. Uh, but, uh, you know, winter in Middle Tennessee is just all gray anyway, so it's, you know... We very rarely get the pretty white stuff or any, anything fun. So anyway, glad you all are here tonight. Uh, so I have been away on uh, Brentwood Baptist Church staff retreat. So we've all been over at Linden Valley Monday to mid-afternoon today. So, uh, so if, uh, you know, if, I'm, if I'm nodding off, somebody hit me up here in the front row. No, I, I will be fine. But uh, we had a good time and uh, it was good. All of our campuses, we do that once a year, uh, get away. And, and so we had uh, a good time together. And uh, tonight we're going to continue our journey through Colossians. The Slido number will be up on the screen here in just a minute. Uh, so remember, if you want to submit a question, you go to slido.com and uh, you enter room number Z0. Uh, Z that's hard to say. Z047. Uh, and, uh, and then submit your question or like a question, and that helps move it up the food chain. And Brian and I will uh, attempt to tackle those questions at the end of our, our time together. But uh, we are super glad that you're here tonight. Let me uh, start us with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump in. Father, we are grateful uh, for the chance to gather in the middle of the week. And I know there's a lot of things going on in our families, uh, schoolwork, work work. Uh, God, a lot of places that we could be, but uh, I'm grateful for my friends who uh, come together on Wednesday night, and God, it gives us a chance to take a deeper dive into your word, and so as we've been journeying, journeying through uh, God, Paul's letters, uh, God, specifically this letter to Colossians, I've been encouraged uh, to be reminded of the supremacy of Jesus, uh, to be reminded of whatever I have going on in my life, that he is big enough to handle it and then some. And, uh, and God, to think about how that relates to the way that we um, declare our belief in you as we minister and as we serve others. Uh, so God, I pray that tonight as Brian teaches, that uh, your spirit fills him and that he, uh, God teaches out of the overflow of the things that you've taught him uh, in this passage, that those will come to us with clarity uh, and conviction so that, uh, God, we can walk out of this place ready uh, to apply those truths to our lives. So be with Brian as he teaches tonight. Uh, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. That's quite the endorsement that you're going to fall asleep on me. <laughs> it's not you. Oh, it's not me. It's, oh, okay. it's not. Yeah, I've, I've had, had plenty of those in high school. Thanks. That's not, that's more than y'all need to know. All right. <laughs> that's, that's pretty sad. Okay. Uh, thank y'all for being here. Yeah, we're going to be in Colossians. We're going to start over in chapter 2, verse 6. Pick up, pick up where we left, left off. And I, I, I kind of like this background thing, right? The letter, the letter to the Colossians is the most Christ-centered epistle. Right, written from prison, Paul proclaims the supreme power, authority, and sufficiency of Christ. But Paul is not making a purely theological argument as he instructs the believers in Christ to walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And that's actually going to be the, right, one of the opening verses we get to tonight. And Colossians is really, as we've talked about, been in kind of two, uh, two basic parts. Right, Chapters 1 and 2 are what Christ has done. Chapter, chapters 3 and 4 are what we should do. Uh, and we've, we've kind of gone through the, the greeting, and then Jay took us through the hymn, and then, then the ministry last week. And, I'm, and um, I thought, that was, I, I thought that, was, that was tremendous, especially considering, right, what's, what's the first word of verse, uh, verse 6? Therefore. What does Jay always say? You see a therefore? You know why it's therefore, right? And so, and so we look back, right? We, we, we look back at the, uh, 
at, the, at, that first, at these first parts. And, and, and Jade went through last week, right? Paul tells the truth about ministry that involves suffering and hard work. Right, that, that, that prosperity gospel that's out there that's so tempting and, 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 so, and so prevalent, right, it's just not true. It's not, not what Jesus, that's not the gospel that Jesus promises in the Bible, right? He, he says that, that we, we should count the cost before we follow it. And, and Paul found joy in those circumstances. Paul found joy in that difficulty, right? Um, and he, that he was allowed to, to share in the sufferings of Christ and steward the gifts and ministries he had been given in the kingdom ends. And his goal was always to mature the believers. Right? In, in Paul's eyes, it was, better, it was worse to waste your life than to lose it. And I love that quote from Jay. It was, better to, it, was, it was far worse to waste your life than to lose it. And we see that in Paul, how Paul led his life. Right? The sacrificial way, all the things that he went through, right? And then we also saw the personal nature of, the, of Paul's ministry to Colossians. He wanted to encourage and exhort and unite and mature them. Um, and that was done in the ultimate goal of knowing Christ, not knowing about him. And that's what we'll see, right? It, we, that, that what we are to know is a person and not facts about something. Um, and it was really cool to see right, that, small, that, that strong spiritual bond Paul had with the church, even though he'd, even though he'd never been there. And so um, let's, let's read the verses. Let's read tonight. I'd, li I'd like to read the entirety of what we're going to look at tonight, which is 2, two 6 through the end, and then uh, come back and kind of break, break it into about three parts. So, uh, so Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. Therefore... Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Wow. Wow. 
right? And those, those first two verses, right, six and seven, are really a summary of the teaching of Colossians. Um, that, that, that since Jesus has done the work and we've received him as Lord, go and live your life standing on the firm foundation, the person of Christ as we showed you, and your, and your, th- and your thanksgiving will pour out of you, right? I love that we receive Christ Jesus as Lord. We receive a person and not a philosophy or a doctrine. Right? We receive a person and not a philosophy or a doctrine. Now, are philosophy and doctrine important? Absolutely. But they are rooted in Christ. Did you catch the number of times that it talked about, right, that, 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 that things that were not of Christ? It's because, so we do have a philosophy, right? We do have doctrine, but they come from the person of Jesus Christ. Right? Not from our own understanding, not something that men make up, not something that, that we contrive. And, and that's, that's really, that's, that's, that's ultimately important, right? Because um, we get confused sometimes. Or we will hold on to, the, to our doctrine in spite of Jesus. Right? We see that in denominations all the time, where they will hold on to a doctrine in spite of what Jesus says. Right, we'll see that with the traditions of man here in just a few minutes. Right, I, I love that we receive him as Lord. He's not an advisor. He's not an option. He's not a voice of wisdom. Uh, right? C.S. Lewis says he's either a, a lunatic, a liar, or your Lord. Right, he is not a wise teacher. Right? We, we had uh, A.J. Levine come when we were teaching the Sermon on the Mount several years ago. A.J. Levine's the New Testament professor at Vanderbilt. And she's a Jew. And she teaches New Testament the way we teach Greek mythology. Zeus. And, right? That's the way she teaches the New Testament. And she came to talk to us about the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. We, we asked her, what, what do you think is so great? Well, she said, it's really a moral teaching. Well, except I don't really think its morals are good because I'm on my third husband. Like, well, so, and we watched Yun Han Guo lead her up to the cross. Uh, we sit there and Dr. Guo was, was our Chinese church pastor. He would lead her up to the cross and she'd go run away. And he very graciously, he'd lead her back up to the cross and she'd go run away. And it was just this beautiful art of evangelism, right? Watching someone who is incredibly intellectual, inc- understands particularly the, all of the scriptures extremely well, and watching and seeing the difference between godly wisdom in Yun Han and knowledge, just cold worldly knowledge of a book. And it was just wild to see, to see the, how the Spirit enables the understanding of even the same scripture. It was just, it was so cool. But that's because Jesus is Lord, right? He is over all things. He's not... Um, and we submit to his authority in all aspects of our lives, and that, which is what Lord means, right? Total control and total surrender. surrender. And we are all certainly a work in progress on this, right? Anybody here totally surrendered? No, right? But we are, the key words there, by the way, is in progress, right? We that are saved are in the process of sanctification. We've talked about those words, right? Justification, which is the made right with God. Sanctification, which is the process we as believers are in, becoming more godly. And one day we will be glorified, right? We'll be taken from the presence of sin into the presence of God forever, right? Amen? Praise, praise God. Um, yeah, but the in progress thing is very, very important. I love that we should walk in him, Right, that, 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 our, that our steps, right? The effect of our faith in Christ Jesus is not something far off or the promise to go to heaven when we die. Well, 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 that's important, right? Our salvation will lead to forever being in the presence of God. Our faith plays out in our daily steps. Everything we do is in light of our kingdom purpose, our service to the lordship of Jesus. Right? It's not we who act, but Christ who acts through us. Right? So everything we do, so our routine, the routine normal things we do every day 
are to the glory of God. Right? No, nothing is ordinary in God. Right? Nothing could be more ordinary than the sun rising and the sun setting. Right? You've got, for Jesus doesn't come back tonight, what's going to happen in the morning? The sun's going to come up. Some of the most beautiful moments I've ever had been watching the sun come up. And I tend to be a sunrise rather than sunset person because I get up in the middle of the night. But sunsets are beautiful too. Right? But some of the most beautiful moments, but that's going to happen again tomorrow. Right? That's the ordinary. Right? That's, that's what you expect. But God makes extraordinary beauty out of ordinary things. Right? Extraordinary beauty out of ordinary things. So don't ever think you are ordinary. Right? Because you're God's child. He has a purpose and a plan for you. And beautiful things will come out of your life. Now, it's not easy. To, it's often not easy following Jesus. Right? But beautiful things will come. Beautiful things will come. And the scripture I had, the other scripture that kind of talked about that was 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you as the Lord Jesus, that you have, as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you, that you do so more and more, right? That we continue in, in God. We continue walking with God. Walking with God. Um, verse 7 is just awesome. I want to go back here some I love that the different analogies, right? That we're rooted and built up in him. I mean, that's, a, that's an agricultural term. Established is an architectural term. That we are built, we are firmly built, right? That's what the established is, right? And then we are abounding in thanksgiving, right? There's this, there's this notion of overflow, this notion of flood of, of thanksgiving, right? And that's what's cool, right? It tells us where to stand, that, the, you know, that, that we are rooted. That we, remember at the end of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says we have rock to stand on. Right, and that's what, we're, that's what we're rooted in. Do you, do you remember the parable of the, of the sower over Matthew 13? He said, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds came, gathered about him. So he got into the boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them these parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns. Thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has, he who has ears, let him hear. Right? Those, those, the word died because he didn't, it didn't have the roots. It wasn't rooted in things. Right? Because that root draws up nourishment. Right? That's what roots do. Right? A lot of times when you'll see a tree that gets uprooted, the roots will be the same size as the tree. Right, that's pretty awesome. We were over in Oregon when a storm came through one time, and they've got these ginormous redwood trees, and one of them had fallen over, and the roots were the size of a house. And the roots were just ginormous, right? Because that's what it drew up nourishment in. And we draw, because we are rooted in a person, we are rooted in Christ, that's what we draw us, that's what draws up into us. Right? That's what nourishes us. And you kind of think about it, and we'll get to we'll get that here in a second. Um, I know I'm too excited about what we teach. Um, and so, our, our, and so as they draw us up to sustain us, right? Those roots hold us firm in our faith as the inevitable storms come, right? And I love that just as we taught, right? Just, just as we taught, that, that Paul has set an example, right? Paul says that over in Philippians. We'll get to Philippians here in a few weeks, right? He says, look, what you've seen, what godliness you've seen in me imitate, right? And God gives us those people, right? That when you see, you can see godliness in them. 
and we have an earthly example of where to go. Right? That's, that's, just, that's just incredibly powerful. Just incredibly powerful. Um, and then abounding in thanksgiving. One of the surest signs of mature faith is overflowing thanksgiving. One of the surest signs of mature faith is overflowing thanksgiving, right? Abounding in thanksgiving, right? If all God did, if all God did through Christ was save me from my sin, if that's all he did, that's enough, right? And as you mature as a Christian, you, under, you should begin to understand that that's everything, right? And so as you minister to people, you realize that they don't need to be taken from their sin, right? That the, the problem isn't their sin. The problem is they don't know Jesus, and if they come to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit will wear them out in their sin, just like he wears me out in my sin, just like he wears you out in your sin, right? Right? Their greatest need is Jesus. It's not to not be an alcoholic. It's not to not be prideful. It's not to not be, right, greedy. It's not to, those are not the things that are the root problem. The root problem is they don't know Jesus. And when they know Jesus, Jesus will take care of the rest of it. I promise you. Right? And we as a body will come around because that's what we do as brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? We take care of each other. Right? Jesus says you'll know me by, by how you love one another. Right? How you love your brothers. Um, everything, everything is grace. Right? And, that, and that abundant thanksgiving, and this is, uh, some commentary said this, the, uh, the, this abundant thanksgiving makes evangelism a natural act of our faith as we talk about what we love. If we love Jesus, talking about him is a natural thing. Thinking about other things you love, right? Your wife, your kids, grandkids, car, job, right? You talk about them naturally, to quote our, our mission statement, anywhere, anytime, to anybody, right? Right? And so you don't have to talk to somebody long to get a strong sense of what they love and where they're focused. That's what you talk about. That's what you talk about. Hmm. That's good stuff. And I love what Jay said. Right? These, the, the several of Paul's letters are so close in theme that right, you get echoes of these things. And over in Ephesians chapter 3, right, he says, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with the power and through his spirit and the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints with the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Hmm. Mm. All right. So this next, the next section is really eight through eight through fifteen, and so see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human human tradition. This and this section really eight through twenty three tells us probably gives us the best idea of what what the apostasy, what the heresy that uh, Paul was dealing with. Right, this philosophy and empty deceit. And this, by the way, this word philosophy, this is the only place Paul uses the Greek word for philosophy, which was a very common word in Greek, right? They're a very philosophical culture, um, which is not to say that, that 
philosophy is unimportant or that Paul is somehow condemning philosophy, right? That, we, that we're, that we're um, because as, as Christians, as we said earlier, right, we have a philosophy. We have a, a way of, of understanding life. But the problem is, is so many things, uh, so many heresies use cleverly designed arguments, right? They had two things. And it's wild because, and this goes back to us being rooted and nourished, right? So we're rooted in, in Christ and so we're nourished. And, and we're filled, right? Paul, Paul talks so many times about filled in this group. And we're filled because when, when, when Benjamin and Micah were conceived, my sons were conceived, right? They were the fullness of a human being. Right, the fullness of a human being, right? And so when they became five, we didn't we 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 nourished them and they grew, right? At five, we didn't go, okay, now you're big enough. We'll put a third arm on, right? By addition, right? We we don't grow by addition. We grow by nourishing, right? And so and so we grow through that nourishment. But when we do things spiritually, a lot of times we think we need to add something, right? And a lot of false religions, a lot of these cults will come and say, you know, you know this, but let me tell you, you know, if you'll just do this, you'll be more spiritual. You'll be closer to God, right? No, no, no. The fullness of God dwells in you. The fullness of God dwells in you. Right now, we mature. We go from milk to meat, right? Paul talks about the maturing process of these sanctifications, right? To present the believers mature, Jay said last week, right? So there is that growth process, but that's through nourishment in Christ. Right, not through adding things on. Does that make sense? That's very dangerous because so many of the false philosophies, right? Some of these, some of these, what does Paul call them, right? Right, say, so no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Right, key word being, not according to Christ. When well, Jesus talked about this, right, particularly about traditions, is that Matthew 15, is that right? Yeah, 15, right? The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of their elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Hmm. Right? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained for me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him. Note he was talking to the disciples and now he calls the people, right? He calls the people in and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. The disciples came to him and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Can you believe Jesus hurt somebody's feelings? <laughs> Poor little Pharisees, right? But think, but we, we, and we kind of giggle, but stop and think for just a second. The Pharisees are the most religious people you know, right? The people that you look up to most religiously. That's who the Pharisees are in this culture. And Jesus teaches something that offends them, right? So these disciples have got to be kind of going... You know, which, which is why the question came up, right? Why, why? You know, and Jesus answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up, right? Because those roots aren't there. They're not rooted in Christ, right? 
Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us, as Peter would always do. And he answered him, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is an expel? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Gee, those lists sound familiar, don't they? Who makes lists like that? Oh, Paul, right? I think he had pretty good source material, right? So they brought, they, and what they, what they were talking about up here with the parents is what, what you would do with your, if you were very wealthy as a Jew, you would set aside all your wealth for God, and then you couldn't use it, and then you would say, I can't use it to take care of my parents. These are dedicated to God. And so you would go on with your wealth, right? We have traditions like that in our churches too, Right? <laughs> As much as we like to kind of look, right? And that, the problem is we haven't changed much. That's why we all need Jesus, right? From 2,000 years ago in Deuteronomy to right now, till Jesus comes. We all have the same kind of lousy people, right? Put the commandments over, the, we put the commandments of man over the commandments of God. Mm. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, all, all of the philosophies are empty and lead to all the, these philosophies, right, that are not, not rooted in Christ. While they're clever sounding, all are empty and lead to despair and destruction. They have no substance to them um, as they are all of this world. The human traditions and elemental spirits of this world indicate some influence of the Judaizers and, and their insistence on adding Judaism to Jesus or other secular traditions like nature worship or both, right? And that's kind of what were the hints we get out of, out of what the, the heresy that Paul's dealing with here because there are some natural elements and some kind of Judaistic elements as we, as we go into this. Um, one side note, every verse from 9 to 15 has a direct reference to Christ. I've never seen that before. I thought that was pretty cool. Right, and verse nine reinforces the incarnation. Right, the full that the fullness of deity right, dwells in him. That's John one fourteen. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right, back with full again, being filled. Right. So Jesus is not some aspect of God or something subordinate. Right, He is God come to us. Um, and so much of Colossians is about being filled, and that root starts in Christ, and him being filled with God, and then our roots, our roots draw down into him. So we have no lack and no need that he cannot provide. We have no lack and no need that he cannot provide. Whatever you're facing, whatever you're dealing with, right? Jesus has got this. Right? Jesus has got this. Mm. Give me a piece of paper. Right, and you've been filled with him who is the head and rule of all, all, head of all rule and authority. Right? That once we've been filled with him and he's our source, right? That he, he is the rule of, he has all rule and authority. Right? 
over the seen, the unseen, princes and principalities. He's above all and over all, right? There's, there's, there's no circumstance. And that's what goes into, we've talked about fear in here, and y'all are probably fairly tired of my definition of fear, right? But fear is ascribing power and authority to something. Right, the Lord gave that to me when I was teaching a series on fear five or six years ago. He said, fear is, is ascribing power or authority to something, right? If you're afraid of a spider, right, and he's sitting on your toilet, you will go pee outside, right? That spider has power and authority over you because you're afraid of it, right? Isaiah 11 says, fear the Lord. Isaiah 12 says, do not be afraid. Does the scripture contradict itself? Nope, right? All power and authority goes to God. And then the world's got nothing. And the world's got nothing. There's nothing in this world to fear. Because all power and authority lies with our Lord. Right? <clears throat> Fires you up. That's good stuff. All right. Uh, in him you were also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, but putting off this body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so... Um, this circumcision, right, is cutting off the, the physical circumcision was a mark of Jewish males to set them apart. It was something distinct to their culture, right, distinct to their culture. But in circumcising our hearts, we cut away the sinful nature of carnal man and live as people free of its power in this world. Right? We cut away the carnal man and live as free people in this world, right? Not, and, and, right, it's not that the world can't do anything to us, but it has no authority over us. Right, the world has no authority because all authority is in Christ. Right? We still sin, but our basic nature has been transformed in, in Christ to a new life. So that sin is abhorrent to the believer, not natural as it is to the sons of Adam. Right? Romans talks about going from being the sons of Adam to sons of Christ. Right? And so sin is no longer, no longer a natural part of what we do. Um, Right, Ephesians 2.11, Therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Right, or Romans 2.29, But a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And then the analogy of baptism, right, it's next. Um, that we're buried with him and raised to walk in a new life and it comes through faith in Christ Jesus. That's a powerful working of God, both his resurrection and ours. Um, we've said before, right, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live, right? It's not about being moral. It's about being dead in our sins. And Jesus came to make us alive, right? That's why we are raised with Christ, a new creation, a new birth, right? And we have nothing, right? And there's... And, Nothing we have in this world can bring someone back from the dead, either physical or spiritual. Nothing we have in the world, right? Death is final in the world's terms. It is not final in God's terms. It's not final in God's terms. And that's death in whatever, by the way, right? Joel tells us that, the, that God can restore even the years of locusts have eaten away, right? Because God is in the past and the present and the future. God can restore things from your past. Right? Praise be to God. He can take the things that were a disaster and make them your testimony. Right? Because things that you intended for bad, he intends for good. Right? He will make work for good. Isn't that awesome? Awesome. All right. Verse 13. You who were dead in your trespasses with the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. 
right? That we're that um, when you when you watch what the world is seeking, right? More than anything, more than anything, there's some innate understanding of a need for forgiveness. And the world doesn't talk about it in those terms because that's, that, that would go against pride, right? They'll call it significance. Right? They'll call it, I need to do something that means something. But what, what people are looking for, they, they know it's broken, but they can't figure out how to fix it. Right? And so they think if, I'm, if I do something that means something, that'll help fix it, right? Because we see, once you become a movie star or a, or a star athlete, your, your life is perfect because all of them go on to lead happy, healthy, wonderful lives, right? Right. Right, and you, and you start to figure out that money doesn't make a difference and fame doesn't make a difference and power doesn't make a difference, right? Right, it exacerbates things, right? Gives you the opportunity to do all kinds of crazy stuff, right? why God hasn't given me a lot of those things because he knows I would screw it up. Praise, praise be to God. I, that's just honest. Right? I, you know, I, I, the, Lord gives me, the Lord gives me what I need. Right? Because it's him handling it through me. Right? And so he gives me the things that he, that he, wants, me to, that he wants me to handle. And I love, I love the, the forgiveness. Right? That, and I love our pastor over at Brentwood, right, Mike, his definition of forgiveness is releasing someone from the expectation they can fix what they've broken. That forgiveness is releasing someone of the expectation they can fix what's broken. Right? And that, that's a lot of what forgiveness is. Right? You understand, and Frederick Beekner says this extremely well, and this, I'm not completely congruent with, with uh, Mr. Beekner's theology. But I th he phrases things in some extraordinary ways. That's a little bit long, but bear with me. He says, to forgive somebody is, in some, is, in, is to say one way or another, you have done something unspeakable. And by all rights, I should call it quits between us. Both my pride and my principles demand no less. However, although I make no guarantees that I will be, be able to forget what you've done, and though we may both carry the scars for life, I refuse to let it stand between us. I still want you for my friend. To accept forgiveness means to admit that you've done something unspeakable that needs to be forgiven. And thus, both parties must swallow the same thing, their pride. This seems to explain what Jesus meant when he says to God, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus is not saying that God's forgiveness is conditional upon our forgiving others. In the first place, forgiveness that is conditional isn't really forgiveness at all, just fair warning. And in the second place, our unforgiveness is among the things about us that we most need to have God forgive us for. What Jesus apparently is saying is that the pride that keeps us from forgiving is the same pride that keeps us from accepting forgiveness. And will God please help us do something about it? When somebody you've wronged forgives you, you're spared the dull and self-diminishing throb of a guilty conscience. When you forgive somebody who has wronged you, you've spared the dismal corrosion of bitterness and wounded pride. For both parties, forgiveness means freedom again to be at peace inside their own skin and to be glad in each other's presence. 
Forgiveness that is conditional is just fair warning. Right? Because the world tells you, you know, forgive, but right? And that but's what gets us in trouble. Because then that's not forgiveness. Jesus didn't forgive us but, right? Jesus gave it all so that we can live. And that's how forgiveness works. And verse 14 says that even the legal consequences of our trespasses have been canceled. That Jesus on the cross took, what, took that with him and buried it. We, know we are no longer burdened, no longer condemned. We are truly free. And if Christ has set us free, we're free indeed, right? Right? Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Romans 7.4, like, likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. In order that we may bear fruit for God. And you have to love verse 15, right? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Right? And you talk about you know, Matthew 12, right? 12, 29, where he says, when he enters a strong man's house, he first has to bind the strong man. Luke 10, 18, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Right? John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. Right? We're back to Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace who has made us one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Mm. Mm. All right, and to the final section, right? Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the, ain't, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason about the sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of flesh, right? So, so this is talking about Jesus and stuff. Right, Jesus and stuff, right? If, if you want to be, if you really want to be saved, you really want to be holy, then you add these things, right? You add these things to your belief. And that's saying that Jesus didn't do enough. Thought about that? It says Jesus didn't do enough. That Jesus didn't do enough. Right? And it, he's not saying that, that worldly wisdom and things we do have are, are of zero value. They're just not of value adding to your faith or making you more spiritual. Right? If you're an alcoholic, it's a bad idea for you to have a drink. Right? It's a bad idea for you to have a drink. But that doesn't make you more or less holy. 
It doesn't make you superior, spiritually superior or spiritually inferior, right? It's 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 those are it's just not towards salvation. Um, Jesus, of course, had several confrontations with the Pharisees over the Sabbath, where they took you know, that rules-based ordinance as opposed to Jesus' heart, right? Jesus, Jesus made the Sabbath, right? And those commandments and law, but these commandments and laws are, are shadows of things to come, and that and it's not that the that that these rituals and traditions are necessarily bad. We just have to be very, very careful on what we carry forward and why. Right? What we carry forward and why. Um, and it's really, oh, Romans 14 has a really, is where Paul, as we've kind of said, Romans is where he kind of blows this stuff out theologically. And, and the beginning of Romans 14 has got this in detail. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but, do, but not to quarrel over opinions. Luckily, we don't do that in church. One person believes he may eat anything, while, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on him, the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. For the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains to the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For this, to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both over the, of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgments on your brother? Or why, when you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Right, that we don't divide on these, these right, that we, there are primary issues and secondary issues. Right, and we don't divide on the secondary issues. Right, and there are people that, that believe certain days are special. There are people that believe, right, there are people that hold devotionals in their home. Rachel and I have never held a devotional in our house. We talk about Jesus when we stand up and go down and walk a long way. It, you know, Benjamin will tell you that our life is kind of a constant devotional. That's the way we do things. That's not the only way to do things. That's the way our family functions, right? There are other people, they have a set, special time set apart to worship the Lord. Are either of them right or wrong? Only if Jesus is telling you to do one or the other. You do what Jesus calls you to do. And our walks are different. That's why we're a body, right? We function differently, right? But we don't, we don't divide or judge of those things. Um, we also don't, don't make things intentionally difficult. Um, right? That's this, let no one call you insist on asceticism or worship of angels. Right? These, there's all these kind of false hyper. And, and I th when I think of it in our day, I think of the New Age movements, right? That there's these ways to peace. And so if you'll say a little thing that, I don't know what they do. They make stuff that smells stuff. Like we call, I, call it, I call it the little stinker. Rachel has one of those things. She puts some oil in it and it smells like something or other. But she doesn't do it for worshipful. She does it for medicinal purposes I suppose 
Uh, but anyway, it, right? But there are people that say these things add to your spirituality, right? If you'll just go meditate, if you'll go hum, if you'll do yoga, if you'll do, right? And those th- there's nothing inherently wrong with those things, but they do not add to your spiritual life, right? They don't, they're not an unto sanctification or salvation. Um, Yeah, and asceticism, right? We see people that go into strict self-denial. And that's what asceticism is, right? That, that, you, that as a spiritual discipline, you, you exercise self-control. And you, you need to be, and Jesus does talk about fasting, right? Which, is, which can be argued as a form of that. But he says, when you fast. But this is talking about very severe spiritual. I mean, you see people uh, over in the Far East, right, that crucify themselves on Easter. That, that, that do severe things to their bodies, severe things in hopes of being more spiritual, right? And that, that's, not what, that's not what Jesus calls us to. That's not the things that, G, that Jesus... That, and there are people that come up with, with it and they say they have, you know, go on in detail about visions, right? They're puffed up without reason and sensuous mind. And all of this is because it's not rooted in Christ. Right? The, the, the key portion, again, is where is it rooted, right? It's the first thing we talked about was where are things rooted, right? Are they rooted in Christ? Are they rooted in Christ? Um, Right, and over in, uh, let's see, verse 18, verse 19. Yeah, and verse 19, right, is, is the contrast, right? We're holding fast the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows as a growth is from God. Um, that the whole body, right, the community of, of believers are nourished and knit together, growing in a growth that is from God. Our church and our community of believers provides pathways of kingdom growth that are not available otherwise. Right, we are right. Your finger doesn't grow on its own. It'd be kind of odd. Have your five-year-old have like a fourteen-year-old finger. Right, the body grows together. Right, spiritual fruit. When we talk about fruit, right, the the fruit of the spirit. Right, an apple tree doesn't generate apples for itself. I've never seen an apple tree eat an apple. Right, the fruit of the spirit is for the community. It's for the body. Right, so that's that's and so we grow right. Our, that's why our community is so important, our community of believers. Even though you, people you disagree with, people you don't like being around can bring out Christ-like attributes. Right? I love that we're nourished and knit together, connected, restored, and renewed. Something about being together in community of believers changes us, restores us, and renews us. Right? That, that we are called to be a body. We're called to be together. Right? We're called to be one because we need each other. This is too hard to do by yourself. Amen? Too hard to do by yourself. But that's why we pray for each other. That's why we check on each other, right? Make sure everybody's all right. Because we, you know, we're, we're all going through storms. All going through storms, right? But we grow together, and that's a growth that's from God. I love this, right? This is probably a, a mostly Gentile uh, community. <laughs> and I love the question, right? Christ, you died. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, right? You died to this world. Are you saved in Christ? Why do you keep, why do you, why do you keep submitting to the stuff? 
Right? Why, do you, why do you follow? Right? God says, you know, my, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. Right? It says the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. Right? So we have to be really, really careful with the wisdom of the world. Because it's foolishness to God. Right? I mean, there are things the Lord calls you to that just don't make any sense. But he clearly calls you. Okay, I'm from a family of engineers, and my son is a junior in college and an English major. I don't understand that. He's been speaking English since he was one. Why do you need a degree? That doesn't make any sense. And I get it. He reads stuff. I, does it, it confuses me, right? Because I'm an engineer. I do math. I do math really fast. I've been doing math for a long time, right? English has very little math in it. I asked him if he reads math books. He said no. Got disappointed, right? But, right? But the Lord has called him. We've watched the evidence of the Lord working it. He's supposed to be an English major at the school he is, doing what he's supposed to do. The Lord's called him there. My other son is, does foreign languages. I keep asking the Lord, if I, do I have an unrepentant sin? How did I not get an engineer out of this? Right? Like, languages. Like, you know, English is my second language, right? Math is my first language. My friend's calling. It goes, beep, right? Like those modems, right? So just hands me the phone and says, it's for you. Because right? we're a bunch of engineers. And so they're having foreign languages and an English major. I'm just not really sure what's going on. It's very, very confusing. But that's what the Lord's call, right? The Lord has wired them that way. And they're part of the body. And they're going to serve the kingdom with those gifts. Right? Just like hopefully I serve the kingdom with the gifts in mathematics and philosophy that the Lord's given. Right? And hopefully they're to his glory, right? That they will see my good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. Same thing with him. Same thing with you. Right? You know, we're all, there is no other. If you look around this room, love you. But there is no reason for all of us to be sitting in here. There's nothing that ties us together. Except Jesus. Amen? Right? The reason we're here is because we love Jesus. And we love each other. And through him, we love each other. Right? We take care of each other. So why on earth would you submit to all these worldly rules? Right? Why on earth? They perish, right? And they have the appearance of wisdom. And, that, and that's what I think entices us so much. And that's one of the things, you know, especially with, with where Benjamin is, right? A lot of the people he talks about are, are very uh, well-renowned renowned people in our world, right? Very, that, that, who have a voice. And when they speak, right, they're on television or they're in newspapers and they have all this authority and they're lost. Benjamin said the most amazing thing about being there, these are supremely talented human beings, like best in the world at what they do. And they have no idea who they are. He said, and I look around and I go, these are going to be senators and presidents. These are going to be Supreme Court justices. He's going to be captains of industry. And they have no idea who they are because they don't know Jesus. Right? They have this knowledge that puffs up, that appears to be wise, that appears to have all these things, right? Very prestigious, right? People come to them, and, but they don't, they're just lost. And Benjamin said it's the saddest thing to see, these supremely talented people that get all the accolades in the world, and you see inside they know they're a fraud. And it's not that they're not talented, it's they don't know who they are. And then you see that remnant of Christianity that's up there, and it's just a different breed, right? When you go into cultures where Christianity is not a cultural advantage, right, where it's not of an advantage, and it is a disadvantage to be a Christian there, right? You're ridiculed, and that's okay, right? But that's where you find out with faith. We went to, a, a, they had all the Christian students get together. It's a school about 5,000 kids. And they got all the Christian organizations together, and there were 90 kids. <coughs> 90 kids. And let me tell you something. The, and the kids play, the students play in the worship band. It's pretty marginal because they're students at a high, highly academic university. They don't have time to practice, right? But that was the most spirit-filled worship service I've ever been in. 
Because these people had no other reason to love Jesus than to love Jesus. Right? And they knew he was Lord. They knew he was right. Right? And what I told Rachel when we, when we, when we, when we got walked out, I said, if, if the church came up out of the world, right, if, if the capital C church raised up out of the world, I said, this is probably the demographics. They, the room was 60% Asian, but 20% black. There are no black students at the school. 20% black and a smattering of white people. And when you think about the persecution in the church and you think about what Asia is going through, you think about what Africa is going through, you see the persecution. Children, you know, Christians being killed with machetes, right, led out of their homes and beaten. Right? If you read God is Red and what the Chinese communist takeover did with Christians, right? You, you, people who have been your friends for tens of, for decades would drag you out of your house and, and lead you around the streets of your hometown and beat you. For knowing Jesus, right? <clears throat> Sorry. But anyway, I'm sorry. Um, but these things, right? These things that we add on, the the, the things that we add on, um, and I'm sorry I went down that trail because that has nothing to do with the scripture. That's where the Lord led. Um, Right, these, these, these things that are so severe that look so wise right, are of no, no value in stopping our indulgence. And one of the things the world, and we talked about this a little earlier, right, the world knows is it needs to stop the indulgence, that somehow the indulgence of the flesh is wrong. Right? You have two ways you can kind of go. You can either give in and kind of go nuts right, with the indulgence of the flesh, or you fall off into Epicureanism, right, where you completely deny your flesh. Neither of those work. Right, because it's not within us, right? This way will destroy you. This way will destroy you. Because only Jesus can heal you. And while all these things have the appearance of wisdom, right? They're of no value in, in stopping the indulgence, in helping you with your central problem, which is your sin, which only Jesus can forgive, right? And I kept trying to figure out a good way to summarize this. And I kept going back to the verse that we started with, right? Therefore... As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounded in thanksgiving. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful. Man, are we thankful. Man, are we thankful. We're thankful that, that, that we that are saved are rooted in you, and that we have supreme confidence in your rule and authority so that this world has nothing for us. And so, Father, let us live free lives, with our good works glorifying you, going about showing the love of Christ and truth so that as many as possible may be saved and so that our, our brothers and sisters are built up more sure of who you are and who Christ is. Fresh name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We get any questions? Eek. I'm not like you and Benjamin. Y'all don't get any questions. Y'all are very, very clear teachers. We're good. All right, just a handful of questions. So you got time to get yours in. Go for <laughs> it right now. So if you want to, if you want to grab a couple of more. But uh, the first question has to do with uh, the, the question is worded this way: Is there a good way to correct? And I think we put this in quotes: "Hand me down religion." Uh, if it's grandparents of parents and still honor them. 
So if I'm interpreting this question correctly, I think it has to do with verse 8, where it talks about, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. So historically, if we think about it, there are four ways, uh, four ways that we give authority or that we look at authority. Um, Reason, experience, scripture, and tradition, right? R-E-S-T. And so reason is our ability to think, figure things out for ourselves. Experience is what we feel, what feels right to us, what works for us, those kind of things. Scripture, of course, is the Bible. Uh, And then T is tradition. And so this speaks of tradition and the fact that, you know, every generation is going to attempt to pass down what they believe uh, to the next generation. Now, in the context of this passage... Of course, this is talking about philosophy, which was the Greek way of life and thinking, and empty deceit is what Paul calls it. So the tradition that's being spoken of here specifically is not a Christian tradition. Uh, this would be, uh, you know, the, the wisdom of the world passed down from one generation to the other. So obviously, um, that's something that we would not want to pass on other than this is what your grandparents believed. This is what your parents believed uh, for more, for, you know, in the sense of informational purposes. Now, if, if the question, and again, I'm trying to interpret whoever put the, this one out there, and it's a good one, is the question, if there's a, a Christian tradition, but there's some, you know, incorrect doctrine or teaching in it, how does the next, uh, and I think if I'm right, a grandparent, right, help correct what's taking place in the home uh, and still uphold what the Bible says, honor your father and your mother. And so uh, if I'm interpreting that correctly, I, I think what the, the approach there that you have to take is that you have to guide and shepherd that home towards the truth, that child, that student towards the truth. And of course, you still have a place of respect for the mom and dad in the home and what they're teaching. And so the best approach there is to say, here, here, is, here is where whatever they're teaching aligns with the, the gospel, with the Bible. So let's use that as our starting place, and let's build build from there. Uh, and in doing so, you're honoring that situation. Now, obviously, if it's flat-out heresy, if it's incorrect, then the best place there is the best way to address that is to um, sit down with mom and dad and have a conversation about the gospel. Um, and I'm trying to think of some scenarios, um, you know, in which uh, I've, I've seen this take place before. There's a lot of things that sound Christian in our culture, but in reality aren't in the Bible. Uh, and so there's a lot of times kind of that, that, you know, proverbial wisdom that's being passed down. And so what you find in those situations is there's a lot of gospel light uh, or uh, a lot of gospel confusion there. Uh, and so the best thing to do, of course, I think, is to engage that parent and then the, the grandchild um, with the truth of the gospel and to try to clarify that um, just like you would any other friend that you're having a conversation with about what you believe and why you believe it. So I think I'm interpreting that correct question correctly. And the other way would be right if the child is seeing a tradition handed down from his parents or her parents and grandparents. That's incorrect. Right? One of the most right. useful things we did at the beginning yes. of, yep. of the class, of a, I was in a class at Brentwood, and the first week they said, okay, I want you to write down everything your grandmom told you about being a Christian. Hmm. And they said, okay, now go find that in the Bible. Hmm. I love my grandmom. Absolutely. A couple things she had wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And so, again, in a respectful way, right, you can sit down, because we, we all have those, right, that you, that you hand down. But you want to test everything as the word. Mm-hmm. Right? So whoever's yeah. handing you anything, whether he's handing you something on a sermon on Sunday or I'm That's handing right. you something on a teaching on Wednesday night, press it all against the word. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, right? the Bereans, right? We, exactly. we want to teach you to be Bereans. Exactly. Uh, who heard the apostles teach, and then they examined <laughs> the word to see if it was true for themselves. As we've said uh, many times, right? Jay, Jay and Brian, fallible. That's right. God's word, infallible. Yep, good word. But, right. I, but I like that approach. And yeah. here's one thing you discover, too. Uh, you know, you talk about write down what your grandma taught you. Sometimes, let's be honest, we didn't hear it correctly. <laughs> you know? Uh, I'm serious. If you're a kid growing up, yeah, yeah, it's like the telephone game. Sometimes, you know, what you thought you heard isn't really what was being taught. But it's where you were. It was maybe your immaturity. Maybe it was the way that you that's took it at word. the time. Um, and so that's why you have to have that objective standard of truth in the word to go back to time and time again. All right, that was, uh, that was number one. Number two, if we are alive in Christ, then why do so many Christians seem to be dead? Wow. Ouch, right? Yeah, how, how long do we have? <laughs> I, I think a lot of people don't, I, I really, especially here where, where the cultural Christianity is still a thing. I think there, there I, well, I know there are because I have friends in places where being a Christian is no longer a cultural advantage. When it's a cultural right. advantage, it's something you appear to believe, right? Mm-hmm. And we talked about that. There, there are three types of beliefs. I can't read the psychology of that, right? Public beliefs, private beliefs, and core beliefs. Public beliefs are things you say for PR purposes only. I think a lot of people are Christians by public belief. Right? We normally associate that with politicians. A lot of people associate that with Christians. Right? Then, core be- then private beliefs are beliefs, things you think you believe until it's tested. And then you find out you don't actually believe them. Mm-hmm. And then That's core good. beliefs are things you actually believe. Yeah, tested right? and proved. Exactly. And, and Jesus is talking about when we were a Christian, that's your core beliefs, right? We reframe. I, I think uh, Barna did a study, and they asked people, are you a Christian, right? And 80% of the people in America said they're Christians. Then he asked, how do you make decisions? And walk down, what worldview do you use to make decisions? 3% of people used a Christian worldview to make decisions. And if your faith isn't, isn't influencing, isn't the primary concern in making decisions, are you really following Christ? Right? Or are you just giving him lip service and he's on your advisors or board of directors? Right? Yeah. I think you're getting at a really important point is that uh, some, quote, Christians appear to be dead because they are dead. spiritually dead, dead in the good. sense that they don't, they've never truly embraced the gospel, mm-hmm. um, that, that there is a, a superficiality, that there, there's been a, a false profession of faith. Um, and so that's one of the things, I mean, Billy Graham years ago said 50% of people sitting in the church pews are not saved. Um, just in his experience. And that was in the, what, the 50s, the 60s. I mean, you know, um, you know, a couple of generations ago. So in that sense, we should never assume the gospel. Uh, and that's been a big shift even in my time in ministry, just to be sure that every Sunday and every opportunity, we are making sure that whatever text we're teaching, we're pointing to the gospel. Because if we assume it, uh, then there are people there who, who haven't heard it clearly. Uh, one of the things I appreciated, I officiated a wedding for a young couple here at the church last weekend. Um, they bo- both work for secular employers. And they said, will you be sure that you proclaim the gospel in our wedding ceremony? Um, and, and to which I said, yes, because I always do. And because I learned years ago, there are people at weddings and funerals who attend no other religious event at any other time. Exactly. Therefore, we're always, I'm always going to weave in a gospel presentation to both of those to be sure that it's, it's clear because uh, we can't assume that people know, oh, I'm coming to a Christian wedding, right? So, um, and so the reality is, is we, we've got to be intentional. But the other reality is, too, is, is that there are people who have made a genuine profession of faith, but uh, it, because they're not being obedient to the word, 
because the word is not dwelling richly in them. Uh, because of those realities, they, they, they don't feel alive. That's the work of the enemy uh, is to, to, you know, that we can be positionally alive in Christ, but we can functionally be discouraged. We can functionally uh, live uh, like we're, we're not. Uh, and so that's one of the things that we have to always be aware of is, is to be sure that we're aware. I can't remember who said it, but there was a secular philosopher uh, in the late 1800s who said, if you want me to believe in your Jesus, then you Christians are going to have to look more resurrected. Mm-hmm. Because one of the evidence, of course, in enlightenment, you know, as Christianity in Europe was already beginning to, to fade uh, and to struggle, was that the Christians that he knew were going through the motions, uh, that they were very much, it was a dead spirituality, uh, even though uh, they attended church and, um, you know, uh, participated in religious activities, their lives did not bear the fruit of that. Uh, and that was a pretty convicting statement. Anything to add to that one? No, that's awesome. All right. And uh, the last one uh, has to do with, Brian spent some time talking about forgiveness. Do you have to forget to give forgiveness? No. No, but, but there's a genuine release of the responsibility. That's good. Um, I, I think, you know, obviously there's wisdom in not putting yourself in dangerous situations the Lord doesn't call you to. The Lord will sometimes call you to a dangerous situation. We have friends that are missionaries, right, that are in specifically dangerous situations. But the Lord, you know, you, you don't have to forget to forgive. Um, I think a lot of times remembering that forgiveness helps me, remembering those that have wronged me, helps me remember how I've wronged Christ. Mm. and how I've wronged others. And so it brings a humility uh, to, to me, I think, to remember those things, to remember how much I've been forgiven, right? And in, and in knowing how much I've been forgiven, I mean, what we, a lot of the forgiveness that I'm asked to give is just nothing. It's a rounding error, right? I mean, when, when you look at how, what Jesus has done for me. Um, I think I, I do believe that, you know, forgiving but is fair warning. I think Beekner's definition, I think that's a very apt definition. Um, but I don't, I don't think you have to forget to forgive, but you do have to release yeah. of, of that responsibility. Yeah, and I think good. that's the key. Right? That's what Jesus did for us, right, is, is he released us of the, of the ability to pay for our sins and eventually he's going to release from the presence of sin, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think probably that's that reference to the, the passage in Psalms that said God for, forgives as far as the east is from the west, um, you know, which, which is a word picture to help us understand, you know, that, that the way that God again positionally looks at us um, when we are forgiven is that that, that sin has been, been removed, that it is, that it is uh, covered, that it's atoned for. Uh, but the reality is we, we're human. We don't forget things. Um, and, of course, God who knows all, right, uh, he knows, knows exactly everything that's taken place as well, and yet chose uh, to, to allow forgiveness to be a very real possibility in which he looks at us uh, and what we've done uh, through the lens of what Christ has done covering us. And so to Brian's point, I think functionally in our, in our hearts, and we'll get to this next week again, because Paul's going to come back to this uh, in chapter 3. Uh, but, but the reality is, is that, that in the best, one of the best illustrations I've heard, right, is that when you don't forgive someone, it's like you've made this fist and you're holding on to something. And uh, if you were to sit there right now and you're to make a fist and just squeeze it as tight as you can, you know, after a while, your arm's going to start to shake. You know, in other words, you're spending an amazing amount of energy and focus holding on to that thing, whatever it is. And so when you forgive someone, what you do is you release that to God. 
And so if I was to have you stand here for 10 minutes and just clench your fists, right, it, that release is a, oh, it is a freedom. And in essence, what you've done, I have a mentor who puts it this way, you have taken someone off of your hook and you have put it onto God's. In other words, God is the one who has to deal with that person and what they've done against you uh, and their sin. And we know that ultimately, right, he is the just judge. And so for us to be able to release that to him, right, is, is the right thing to do in the sense of he's the one who's able to judge appropriately and hold someone accountable and responsible. And yet at the same time for us, it is freeing. And so that release that's a genuine release is there. And it doesn't mean, as Brian was alluding to earlier, that you are naive. In other words, you allow someone to hurt you again and again and again, right? Because that's not good for them. There needs to be a boundary that's there. So you can genuinely forgive and yet place a boundary there so that person, that situation cannot hurt you again. Um, because that's called enabling, and that's not good for that person either, if that makes sense. So we could spend a whole lot of time just talking about uh, forgiveness and the dynamics there, but in the sense that we're talking about here and that Paul's talking about, the forgiveness of Christ, of course, is where it begins for us, and that we are to give that level of forgiveness to others and releasing them um, to to what God has for them. Well, and, accept, and accepting that forgiveness is a release, also. That's right. Right, because you have to, as Beekner said, you have to you have to admit you did something unspeakably wrong. Yep. Right, and that's what part of the unprepared, the unforgiven servant. Right, is mm-hmm. he he didn't receive the forgiveness the master gave him. So Jesus has forgiven you. Mm-hmm. Right, and so you need to live like it. Yeah, there's a certain brand of heresy that says whatever I've done is so bad that even the cross couldn't pay for it. Right. That's a, that's and so the, there are people who hold on, right, to, to their sin, saying what I've done is so bad. I believe in forgiveness for you, but it's not possible for me. And so they live lashed to, to that past, to that situation, and they allow that sin to define them uh, rather than being truly set free by Jesus and believing that's possible. Good. Okay. All right. Oh, oh, we got we got a last second question. So, but God requires our repentance before he forgives us of our sin. Why would we not expect repentance from those that wrong us? Well, I, I guess one of the, you know, I, I, as, well, as, a, well, as a human, that's a great question. As, as a human... As, there, there's something, I guess God is different than we are, which is kind of a bizarre thing to say, right? Um, and very accurate and thing very, to say. Thank you. Theologically and stuff. If I didn't say that, we'd probably be in trouble. I, I, you know, it, it's not to God's benefit. For the, the, the repentance is an act of will on somebody else's part. And God's not, God is, has set things in motion, right? That his, his wrath is stored up. And I think for us to forgive, even though repentance is an act, is to, is to release something. Is to because we have been already given forgiven so much, and we were, by the way, you were forgiven before you were sinful, right? right? While we were still sinners, that's right. Christ died for us, so He doesn't. He did not require repentance to forgive us, right? His forgiveness is not conditional. Now we get to accept that forgiveness and as a free gift. And so, guess what? Our forgiveness gets to be a free gift, right? Because that's what, that's what the Lord did for us. And so how would we not do it for our brothers and sisters? Right? Because God's already done that for them, by the way. right? Because while you were still a sinner, but while they were still a sinner. right? And that's the hard part for us. Right? Did you see what he did to me in traffic? 
Right? Surely Jesus doesn't forgive that, <laughs> right? Right? It comes down to that thing. We want grace for ourselves, but we <laughs> justice, want justice, justice for everybody Absolutely. else. Absolutely. Right? I'm, I'm big on justice of, for everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, too, it's important to use that word repentance in the biblical sense. Uh, yes. The Old Testament word picture, of course, is a turning, that there, there is a change of direction there. Uh, and the New Testament word picture is that there is a, a change of mind, a renewed uh, mind, a redeemed mind. Amen. In other words, the way we, we think about everything is, is different uh, in that reality. And so we know that forgiveness, God's forgiveness transforms our direction. It transforms our, the way that we see the world, uh, the way that we think, so that we can forgive, perfect segue to next week, as Christ <laughs> forgives us, Amen. which is... Colossians chapter three. So, all right, let's pray and uh, we'll go. Father, thank you uh, for the reality that we are made alive in Christ. And uh, God, the, the density with which Paul teaches the Colossians and us, uh, these verses just packed verse by verse with the reality of what that means. So Father, I pray that we indeed are made alive with Jesus. We believe that we are by him, but I pray that we live that out uh, as we leave this place, that we uh, are able to forgive, that we uh, are able to recognize that what you've done for us in the cross transforms us from the inside out. Uh, so God, I pray uh, that uh, as we leave this place, we're not held captive by any uh, false teaching, uh, God, by any uh, philosophies of man, by empty, any empty ways of thinking but instead that we return to the gospel time and time again. So thank you for this time that we've had to be in your word tonight. It's been rich, and we look forward, uh, God, to returning uh, to be with your people to study your word again. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.